0: All right. Well, good morning, everyone. How are you guys doing? Good doing good. My name is Pastor Kevin. If I haven't met you, I am the pastor of spiritual formation here at K-First, meaning that if you are interested in joining a table, a team, or attending a training, I am most likely the person who's going to be talking you through that experience, if you're looking to start a table or anything of that nature, I would be the one that would connect with you, reach out to you. And so since I'm here, it's a good time to plug that. If you are interested in a table or a team or anything of that nature, I do want to remind you that we always have all the information on the back of the wall there. There's a table's wall and a team's wall. And I know that you're probably thinking, if I go there, I don't know where, where, where does it even start. So if you have any interest, please talk to me. I'd love to go back there and kind of just walk you through the wall and show you the different options that are there. Our website also is updated with all of our current tables and teams. And so there's a lot of ways to make it simple for you to get it connected in those areas. But if you ever have any question at all, you know, if if you try to team out or a table out, and you're like, Pastor Kevin, you said it would be great, and I really don't like it. That's okay. I don't, I don't, that doesn't bother me, okay? So as you try things out, let me know so we can find the best fit for you here at K-First. But that's just a little bit about me and, and what I do here at K-First. Because this morning, we're really here to continue our series, The Last Week. We've been going through a series looking at Jesus' last week here on earth. And that'll lead us up to Easter Sunday, where we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. And today, we're going to look what happened on Holy Week. Wednesday of Passion Week. Now I have a a question for you because Wednesday is an interesting time in the Christian tradition because Holy Wednesday, it also goes by a couple of different names depending on your upbringing, maybe what church you're a part of. So I want to have a a very quick trivia question for you See if anyone knows the answers. Does anyone know one of the two names that Holy Wednesday also goes by? If you do, shout it out. Ash Wednesday. Good answer. Any other answers? Well, Ash Wednesday is definitely one. But the two that I was looking for is Silent Wednesday. Anyone ever hear that term before? Silent Wednesday. Silent Wednesday, we call it that because if you look in Scripture and you see the order of events during Passion Week, chronologically, some would say that there's not a ton of description of Wednesday in Scripture. And if you look at our passage for today, you're going to notice, yeah, it's a little bit smaller than all the other narratives that you find in Scripture regarding Jesus' last week. The other name that we give to Holy Wednesday is Spy Wednesday. Any guesses for why it's called Spy Wednesday? Because it's the day where Judas agrees to betray Jesus. Doesn't actually do it yet, but he talks to the Pharisees and religious leaders and says, hey, I want to go through with this. Now, for us today, we're gonna follow close to the narrative that you find in the Gospel of Mark, and if you're to look in the Gospel of Matthew, they're gonna be very similar. They're gonna closely resemble each other. But we're gonna look more at Matthew or Mark. I'm sorry, Mark this morning, because Holy Wednesday is unique in that it definitely is not as dramatic as the other stories we find during Holy Week. We don't see an angry Jesus flipping tables like you guys talked about last Sunday. We don't see a nostalgic Jesus who's sitting at his last meal with his closest friends. We don't even see a grieving Jesus who is distressed about what was to come as we see in the Garden of Gethsemane. Holy Wednesday, in terms of Jesus' life, was not too different than any other. It was quite mundane outside of one small act. To me, Wednesday kind of feels like the calm before the impending storm. And it's a time in Jesus' life that we tend to skip over in order to get to the exciting parts of the Easter story. But I believe that if we slow down just a little bit, and we look a little bit closer into what happens in this moment, we'll find a situation that gives us a message that is highly relevant for us today. Today. Because a question that most people have at some point in life, or maybe many times in life, is, what is the point of our life? Has anyone ever asked that question before? What is the meaning of all of this? And I know that we're in church, so it's hard to to answer that honestly because we're supposed to know the answer, right? We're here to to worship Jesus, to bring honor to his name, to further his kingdom, to glorify God. However, when we get stuck in the everyday routines— when life feels mundane, we can find ourselves wondering, what's the point? Am I even doing this right? And if we're being truly honest, we may even wonder, where is God in these moments? If there's supposed to be meaning, why can't I feel his presence with me? You know, we've all been told that following Christ, it leads to transformation. It's supposed to make life better. Now, of course, it'll be hard times, but all in all, it should make our lives better. We've been encouraged through, in, through countless messages that God is going to use us for big things or that the best is yet to come. And those are true things, but sometimes it seems like our, that hope in Christ is so unattainable that we end up just simply attributing it to heaven because it doesn't just seem realistic for us here on earth right now. And I would have to guess that perhaps we often find ourselves feeling this way is because we fail to see how God is working in the mundane right before our very eyes. And even more than that, He is calling us to faithful respond to Him in the everyday moments of our lives. A good example of this is the phrase, you probably know it very well, the good old days. Anyone have the good old days? Remember those days? I was there too, the good old days. And it's not uncommon for us, you know, to look back at an earlier time in our life and remember a time that was better. Maybe we were a little bit younger Maybe we were a little bit more uh, youthful. Uh, maybe it was a time when we were a little bit more indignified. Uh, maybe your kids were younger back then. Or maybe there was something significant that happened that you look back to and you say, those are the good old days. I know for myself, I'm blessed to know that I have some friends from high school that I'm still really close to, and I get a chance to talk to them fairly often, and we... When we talk, we often talk about the good old days, the, the moments from high school and even beyond that that we can celebrate together. And many of those moments, though, are some of those more <laughs> undignified ones, if anyone can relate from your younger years. And one of those moments in particular that I find humorous even till today is a time when we were sitting in class. It was earlier in the, the school schedule, I guess one of our first couple classes. And you should know that my school that I went to, it was a smaller private school. So for us, We didn't really need to carry a backpack around. You could get to your locker and to class in plenty of time. There's some schools that are so big you got to carry a backpack everywhere because you're going to miss your class, right? But for us, we could get to our locker and back and forth pretty easily. So not many people utilize their backpack to its full potential, except for one of my friends who would constantly lug a backpack everywhere he went, and it probably like weighed the same as like a small human, maybe a child. Uh, It was pretty heavy. And he, I don't even think he knew his locker code because he just never even went to the locker. But anyways, we were sitting in class one day. We must have been working on a group project because we noticed that in the classroom, there was a door that led to the outside. And just outside that door were some bricks. And my friend, who has the backpack, he went to the bathroom. And so my friends and I, we got together and we said, Hey, it would be really funny if we grab one of those bricks and put it in his backpack. And we'll see how long he goes throughout the day without noticing that it's there. So, you know, I don't know, I don't know how he snuck outside to get these bricks. They weren't far, but we somehow we, during this class period, we opened the door. We actually grabbed a couple bricks, not just one. And we put them in his backpack, okay? He comes back from the bathroom, sits down. The bell rings. He grabs his backpack, puts it on. And we're kind of watching, like, is he going to notice? And he walks out the door like nothing happened. The entire day. We go through all of our classes, long story short, we get to the very last period of the day, and we're wondering, has he found these bricks and just not said anything? Like what is going on? He, there, he must feel something. And so, as you know, teenage boys do, we're all kind of giggling a little bit and go, hey, has your backpack felt heavier today? And he notices, you know, the suspicious giggling in the background, and he goes, what? He looks at his backpack, opens it up to find two big bricks sitting in his backpack. And he was not happy in the moment, but to us it was pretty funny. And hopefully today he looks back and thinks it's funny. I don't know if he does. But those are the good old days, right? And I'm sure you have good stories just like that of times when you did silly things or times that you can celebrate. But as I find myself feeling nostalgic in this moment, I've come to realize that the good old days are not just the past, the days that you're living in right now. I wholeheartedly believe that following Jesus helps us to recognize that the moments that seem mundane or ordinary or just like a phase of life are not moments to be missed, but moments to be cherished as they happen. Because the Holy Spirit is speaking at each moment, leading us, but quite often we're too distracted to listen because we're so focused on the next big thing. Now, please note, as, I, as we talk about this this morning, I am not saying that we should not plan for the future. We should. But we can't be so focused on the future or even so reminiscent of the past that we forget to see the opportunities that are right in front of us that God is giving us every single day, right here and now. And I believe that our passage this morning is going to reveal this to us. So I want to invite you to turn to your Bibles to Mark 14, 3 through 9. In a moment, it'll be up on the screens as well, I'm sure. But before we read it, I do want to address something real quick, okay? So you can find it in your phone, which will be two seconds. Or if you have a paper Bible, it might take you a little bit longer. But as you do, um, I want to just make a note of something real quick. Because if you were to turn into Matthew 26, 6 through 13, like I said earlier, you're going to find a fairly identical account of this story. It's going to follow basically identically. However, if you turn to the Gospel of Luke or John, they also have accounts of Jesus being anointed, but there's some difference in the details of who is anointing Jesus, how they anoint Jesus, and when they anoint Jesus. And we're not going to go into a ton of detail regarding those differences because we're here to focus more on the mark this morning. But I do want to let you know that depending on which gospel you look at, you might think there's some contradictions going on here. They're not telling the same story, or maybe the details are a little bit different. And to be honest with you, you could probably make a case for one, two, or even three separate anointings of Jesus. And if that's the case, they're all out there you can get something from all of them. They can all be true. But I want to give you a quick note about what happens when we see contradictions, specifically in the Gospels. I want you to remember two quick things, okay? And the first is that biblical history, it's different than contemporary history. Let me give you an example. I want you to finish this famous line. I'm going to flip it though, but finish the famous line, all right? Columbus sailed the ocean blue in 1492. Now, if you were to go to the bookstore and you pull out a book on Columbus and it says, you know, he sailed the the ocean blue in 1492, you're going to say, yeah, that sounds right. Now, if you pull out another book and it says he sailed the ocean blue in 1452, you're probably going to throw that book out, right? That's not a historical text. Now, when we look at a book such as Exodus for the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, when they're looking at the story of God freeing them from Egypt, you're not going to find any dates in that passage. Because they're, they're, for them, history wasn't so much about remembering a specific date like we do today. For them, they were more concerned with the fact that God did lead them out of Egypt and what that meant for them as a community. History was a little bit different then and now in terms of how we utilize it. Both accurate, both helpful, just in a different context. The second thing is that the gospel writers wrote for a specific purpose. You know, while they were providing us an account of Jesus' life, they wanted to be historical, they wanted to share a story of his life, they were writing with a specific purpose of sharing the gospel message. So it was historical 100% but their main goal was to encourage and convict people to follow Christ. So do we worry about the differences? No, in terms of of reliability and accuracy, we can trust that Scripture is true and what God intends it to be, specifically in these passages as well. So with that disclaimer, let's read Mark 14, 3-9 together real quick. It says this, While he was in Bethany, he reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want. But you will not always have me. She did what we could. She poured perfume on my body to prepare for my burial. Truly I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. So upon first reading, we definitely get the sense that there is something meaningful going on, right? That Jesus takes her act in a meaningful way. But I want to illustrate it to you even further by breaking down a few things, because it takes the story to an even deeper Level. So the first thing I want you to notice is whose house they're eating at. His name is Simon the Leper. But here's the thing Simon the Leper, was he a leper? Probably not. Why? Because if he was a leper, he probably wouldn't have guests over his house, he probably wouldn't even have a house, and he probably wouldn't even be allowed in the town. So what we can take away from this term of Simon the Leper is that he's been healed of leprosy most likely by Jesus, or maybe one of his disciples, but by Jesus' ministry. And he's someone that the Christian community who's reading the Gospel of Mark would have recognized and said, yes, I remember that Simon. I remember how he was healed. So we have Jesus here at the meal with his closest friends, hosted by a man who was healed through his ministry. And we know what Jesus says about, his, about the woman's, sac- woman's offering, that gives us a clue that he probably has his impending death on the back of his mind. It's something that maybe he's contemplating even in this moment of just being with his friends, eating a meal. Perhaps he's trying just to enjoy some moments of normalcy before his impending death, before the days got a little bit crazier. When all of a sudden, a woman stops by the home, but we don't know her name. Some people think it's Lazarus' sister Mary, could be acquaintance, could be a stranger. Mark and Matthew, they don't say for certain who she is. But what does seem to be clear is that she wasn't an invited guest to the dinner. The language used in the Greek, it basically explains that Jesus was already at the meal when she arrived. If she was invited, they probably would have waited for her. She would have been on time. She would have been there for it. So while we can't unanimously identify who she is, What we can be certain of is her devotion to Christ. She most likely heard his teaching, was moved by his teaching. She's deeply devoted to him. But this leads us to the big question. What was her intention by bringing this oil and anointing Jesus? Now, there isn't any evidence that she was aware of Jesus' impending death. Jesus is the one who makes that connection in that moment. So I want to put ourselves in her shoes for just a moment because here we have this woman who's been deeply touched by Jesus, who loved and respected him deeply, who wanted to honor him in a unique way and express to Jesus how much he meant to her. So as she's at her home trying to figure out, you know, what can I do? What can I do to show this man that I admire so much, who I respect so much, who has blessed me so much, that I am devoted to him, and she comes across an alabaster flask of oil. And the flask or the jar that she found was made of soft alabaster, which meant it was a type of jar that was used specifically to preserve ointment and perfume. It was the best way to keep it fresh, and it was sealed completely. There was no openings until you wanted to use it. Not only was the flask special, it had a special purpose, but it was filled with nard, which was an oil extracted from a root native to India, meaning this was an expensive perfume. It was worth over a year's wage, as we see in the passage, for this woman to have such a valuable perfume. It most likely was a family heirloom that was passed down to her from her mother, And she was supposed to then give that perfume to her daughter or future daughter. We don't know if she has a daughter or not, but to her future daughter. This wasn't just an ordinary perfume that she pulled off the shelf. It was expensive. It had great meaning within her family. Yet she came across a small alabaster jar, and she knew that this oil was the closest thing she could find that would convey her devotion and gratitude to Jesus. And this is purely conjecture on my part. But I bet she realized that if she was going to go through with this, it was a bit absurd. Using such an expensive perfume to honor this man. If she was aware of Jesus' teachings, like the disciples were, she may even have in the back of her mind too, what if Jesus doesn't like it? What if he wants me to donate this to the poor? What if that would be a better act of, of, of showing devotion to him? Yet she was confident in the promptings of her heart. And so she goes to find Jesus. She finds him sitting at the table. She breaks the neck of the flask. I was considering breaking this. I'm like, no, that could be a a problem. I'm not going to try it. But she broke the neck of the flask. There's no going back once that's broken, right? You got to go for it. And she begins to anoint the head of Jesus with oil. One scholar I read believes that she didn't just lightly oil Jesus. She didn't just lavishly oil anoint Jesus she drenched Jesus in the oil because it's open. You got to use it. Recognizing, you know, how close and intimate she was to Jesus in this moment, being close, anointing this oil over his head, she may have even felt a bit embarrassed to be so close to this man, this person she respected. But we don't see Jesus repudiate any of that embarrassment. Yet in the midst of this intimate And costly sacrifice, the disciples begin to speak up. And this is just my interpretation, but how dare you waste that perfume? Don't you know how many hurting and poor people we could have used with the money from that? One translator describes them as being indignant. Another translator basically uses the phrase, they turned on her in anger. They were growling, the tension in the room was high. And the woman who probably maybe had some doubts going into this moment, to be berated by Jesus' closest friends, his followers, she was probably starting to feel pretty intimidated. Wondering, does Jesus feel the same? I'm here to show him my honor, I'm here to show him how much he means to me. And here are his closest friends berating me. What is Jesus gonna think? While this is going on, we have Jesus sitting processing the oil running down his head, onto his body. He recognizes the generosity of the gift as a beautiful expression of love, which possessed a deeper significance than that woman could have ever understood. The woman's gift was more than appropriate precisely because of the approaching hour of his death. Upon hearing the tone of the disciples berating the woman, he comes to her defense and he calls the disciples out, because they have yet to truly hear what he's been telling them for the past however many weeks and months, that his time on earth is coming to an end, and it's something that they wouldn't even fully understand until after Jesus died. Jesus affirms the woman by telling the disciples that they will always have the poor, but they won't always have him. And there is deep symbolism in these words, because in the weeks leading up to Jesus' death, especially in the week itself, Jesus is the one who is, in fact, poor in spirit. While her intentions were to simply show honor, she actually exceeds the expectation of the disciples by caring for Jesus when he was at a place where he was deeply hurting. Now, you may be wondering how could Jesus, the Son of God, be hurting? How can he be poor in spirit? we'll just look a little bit further to the Garden of Gethsemane, where we see Jesus ask God, the Father, is there any other way? Jesus was committed to what he was supposed to do, but it definitely was eating him up on the inside as well. We see that throughout Scripture. The woman's act, it was so meaningful to Jesus that not only did he praise her in front of the disciples, but we see this interaction close with Jesus' words in verse 9, and I love this, this phrase that he uses. He says, "...wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told of her, will also be told in memory of her." This statement is directly connected to the Great Commission, to go and make disciples. And what that woman did in that moment, it will be remembered and honored wherever the gospel story of Jesus is shared." Right now, as we share this message together, we remember what she did. We may not know her name, but we know her deep level of devotion to Christ. Her willingness to give a gift so precious, to do what may have seemed foolish, yet it was exactly what Jesus needed in that moment. She was faithful to the prompting of God in her heart. She wasn't dismayed. She performed an act that to some seemed wasteful, but to God it was admirable. And the reason why I'm spending so much time breaking this passage down with you is because I don't just want you to hear it. I want you to feel it, to experience it, to know what was happening in that moment. Because something special happens in this passage. We often fly over it to get to the drama of the scripture or the drama of Passion Week. But in the mundanity of Jesus eating a meal with his friends, in the lull of a week that would change history forever, we see something so beautiful— because this one recognized, amidst the mundanity of her own life, she needed to disrupt the norm, to have faith in the prompting of her actions, to express complete devotion to Jesus. What I want you to see this morning is that life is going to be mundane. In our culture, it's also going to be really busy. It's easy for us to get caught up in the routines, and the busyness of life, that we fail to see what God is doing right in front of us, to see the beauty of what Jesus is doing in every single moment of our lives. We have the opportunity to spend time with God, to grow in our relationship. We come into contact with people every single day who need to know Jesus, who need to feel his love. And if we are simply going through the motions each day of our lives, we will find ourselves looking back at the good old days, of our lives without recognizing that God was at work in our past just as he is right now and he will continue to do in our future. I know that we're people of hope who look forward to seeing God's kingdom come and what comes after we die, that there's eternal life where we're united with Christ. We can sometimes forget that God's kingdom is here and now. All of creation speaks to the goodness of God and as people we bear his image Yeah, we can't forget that all of creation is God's masterpiece. Yes, our sinfulness messes that up sometimes, but we can experience the goodness of God in even the simplest of things, even in the smallest of moments. Yes, heaven is the ultimate prize, but also each day that he gives us is a precious gift. And I believe that God was intentional in what he created here in this earth. He created us as people who need community and relationships so cherish the opportunities that we have to be in relationship with one another, to see the image of God in one another. When we recognize God's presence, God's goodness in the little and simple things, it allows us to be open to where the Spirit is leading. It helps us to have faith to grab the alabaster jar, break it open, and bring life to someone who desperately needs it in that moment. Please hear my heart this morning. I'm not discouraging the big things in life. We should expect God to work in big ways. We should celebrate the good things that happen. But we also have to acknowledge the reality that we won't see God move in big ways if we don't take time to notice him in the small things, in the little things. When we choose to take time out of our routine to show kindness and comfort to someone who is hurting, when we find joy in the simple things of life where others aren't so optimistic. It shares the love of Christ with those who are around us. And to be honest, there is way more meaning in the mundane than we truly realize. Learning to see how God works in those mundane moments builds up our faith so that we not only see meaning in the everyday, but we know when to disrupt it. Developing the trust of listening to the Spirit when He calls us, just as that woman did. That woman, her concern was less about following what would have been popular in regards of opinion. But she sided with being authentic and genuine in her devotion to Christ. Seeing a moment of opportunity in the mundane and being so devoted that she was willing to disrupt it. The times in Scripture where Jesus calls out the rich, the Pharisees, and even the disciples were moments where the individuals were doing something not out of devotion, but two things. One, selfish ambition, and two, an unwillingness to shake up what they perceived to be comfortable. Last week, Pastor, we have talked about church hurt. And right now in society, the sins of the church have been exposed. And I believe that rather than simply trying to defend ourselves from those who have tarnished the reputation of the Big C Church in order to maintain the status quo, we need to show the world what it truly means to follow Christ, what true devotion looks like, And I believe the woman in today's story is the perfect example of how that is done. It starts in the everyday moments of our lives. It's knowing that there is meaning in the mundane, and having such a deep devotion to Jesus that we are compelled to act when the Spirit is telling us to act. I want to point out one more thing to you real quick from this passage. The woman used by God to honor and comfort Jesus, she wasn't named in the passage you would think that in the moment when Jesus needed support, that it would have been his closest friends to come and comfort him. And by the way, his closest friends are looked upon as the founding fathers of our faith, as heroes of the faith. Yet these heroes missed it in this moment. Now let's have some compassion on them, because we wouldn't be sitting here today without them and what they did, right? So they're still important. But God didn't use who would expect in this moment. In fact, one of Jesus' closest friends, one of the disciples, Judas, just a few verses later, agrees to betray him. Yet God uses an unnamed woman to meet Jesus' most dire need in this moment. This is just my conjecture, but perhaps the fact that we don't know this woman's name illustrates this point even further. She didn't act so that Jesus would think highly of her. She acted so that Jesus would know how deeply devoted she was to him. Whether he knew her name or not wasn't important. What was on her heart was important. And it's her heart that we remember her for today. Emily, if you want to come and start playing, that'd be great. You know, God isn't looking for the most talented or even qualified He's looking for those who are faithful and devoted. Talent and qualification, they're outward identities. While devotion and faithfulness, those are inner qualifications of the heart. It's devotion and faithfulness that God is looking for. And it's the devoted and faithful who see the meaning, not just in the grandiose, but in the minuscule as well. So this morning, I want to ask you, Who do you resonate with in our passage of Scripture this morning? The the devoted woman or the oblivious disciples? And let me just say, we can resonate with both of them throughout our life. We can resonate with both in a single day. This isn't a question of whether you've made it or not, because no one in this room is perfect. I'd love to say that I'm as devoted as that woman, but more often than not, I'm just like those disciples. Do you resonate with the woman who was so devoted to Christ that in the midst of her everyday life, she was able to hear the Spirit's prompting and to honor Jesus, one of her most precious precious possessions? Are you motivated out of your devotion to Jesus? Do you see God working in the mundane? Are you willing to act within the everyday moments of life to bring honor to Him? Or do you reflect the disciples? who gets so caught up in the motions of being an ideal Christian, that you get so caught up in doing the right thing, saying what's right, more than truly knowing his heart. She knew his heart in that moment because she was open to the Spirit speaking. My guess is we probably all want to be more like the woman this morning. So I want to give you just a few quick things that I believe will help us to begin our journey of devotion to Christ, or take us to that next level in our journey of devotion to Christ. And the first thing is simple. You guys know this. Prioritize spiritual formation. Pray. Read scripture. Talk about faith with friends. Simplify your life so that you can focus on what truly matters. We get caught up in so many things. Simplify. Focus on what's important. Number two, recognize God in the mundane. Slow down. Thank God for the little blessings in life. Express gratitude for any simple moments of joy that maybe normally you would just overlook. Cherish the relationships that you have. See the beauty in life. Slow down and and be open to it. Number three, take risks to disrupt the routine when the Spirit is nudging you. When you're in that moment and you feel the Holy Spirit saying, hey, hey, Share this, do this, take a chance. Encourage someone, help someone. Disrupt your routine. The more we slow down and we see the beauty in the mundane, the better we recognize the Spirit speaking to us, even in those routine moments of our day. When we're devoted to Christ, we will be compelled to trust the Spirit and disrupt the routine and act upon God's will, whatever that might be in the moment. And in doing so, it contributes and furthers the message of the gospel, whether that's simply aligning our hearts closer with his or showing love to someone else who needs it. It's easy to go through life wishing we could make a difference, that our name would be remembered, that we would be significant, that we would find meaning in this lifetime. But we see it so clearly in this passage. The gospel is not spread through greatness, but little acts of faith like that of the woman. When we seek first God's kingdom and are sensitive to the Holy Spirit, we are contributing to the gospel story. Your devotion and obedience to God matters. does not matter how big or little it may be. It is all meaningful to God. Your devotion and obedience matters to Him. That is all that matters, and it means much more than we will ever know in this lifetime. But when we do that, we contribute to the gospel. And that's where we discover true joy. Imagine being so aware of God's goodness, even in the little things, how much joy and contentment that would bring to our lives. That's the hope that Christ has for us today. Meaning for, to, for today, in each and every moment. And it starts with our devotion to him. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the woman in Scripture who was willing to disrupt her daily life, her daily routine, to meet Jesus in a need, in a moment of need that only she could do. Help us, Lord, to have that same sensitivity in our spirits that would be so devoted to you that we would work in our own personal lives to know you more, that we would be willing to act when you prompt us in those moments where maybe normally we would overlook because we're busy doing something else or we got other things to handle. Help us to be like that woman. Soften our hearts. Help us to be devoted to you. Let us see the beauty in the mundane, that we would be people that, didn't, that don't take for granted the everyday Details of life, but that we would see you working in the big and the small. You know me, pray. Amen.